You are listening to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Stay tuned for the Heartland Labor Forum, radio that talks back to the boss. Forum, a weekly show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. This show is produced by a team of volunteers from a broad range of workplaces and unions. The views expressed on the Heartland Labor Forum are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any unions involved. Welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum. Tonight's show is being underwritten by United Auto Workers Local 249 and Kansas City Building Trades Council. United Auto Workers Local 249 members building the best Ford trucks and vans in the world. And the Kansas City Building Trades Council, the men and women who build KC. The Heartland Labor Forum and KKFI thank our underwriters for their support. On tonight's show, it's Justin Akers Chacon, author of The Border Crossed Us, he argues that our policies of open borders for goods and closed borders for people hurt all American workers. He makes the case for opening the U.S.-Mexican border. Then, did you ever wonder why the law that protects the right to organize excludes ag and domestic workers? We'll ask Professor Juan Perea from Loyola Law School in Chicago if it has anything to do with race. In the news... Jackson County reverses course on pensions, and what does the decline in immigration have to do with the labor shortage? Our feature at the end of the show is Labor Song of the Month. It's Los Lobos with Huelga General. That means general strike. Now for the news. Now news from our side, December 29, 2022. Earlier this month, the Jackson County Legislature approved a pension increase for employees in the Sheriff's Department while leaving all other county employees out of the deal. County Executive Frank White vetoed the measure, and on Tuesday at a meeting, supporters hoped to gain six votes necessary to override White's veto. They failed on a 5-4, to four, according to the Kansas City Star. The measure had problems. It was rather generous, increasing the retirement calculation benefit rate by 50%. It was voted on without pension board review to see if it was affordable, and even worse, it favored deputies over everyone else. White City used the veto because passing the measure without review was irresponsible. 
Jalen Anderson, who was just reelected to the county legislature, gave us this statement. I was proud to stand alongside my fellow colleagues, friends in labor, and our pension board to fight and win to sustain the county executive's veto. The original ordinance was unfair and would have left all county workers behind while focus focusing on just one group of workers. I believe if there is to be any legislation that changes, raises pension percentages, it has to be considered across the board. Government cannot show favoritism with the people who work hard for the county. I stand with my friends in labor and the workers. I'm proud to continue to advocate for everyone, not just a chosen few. The FOP, representing deputies, was the only group in favor of overriding the veto. They said that the pension increase would help the short-staffed department recruit, but there was testimony in favor of the veto from unions representing correction officers and other county employees, including 911 dispatchers represented by CWA Local 6360, who have been short-staffed for a long time. Speaking of a labor shortage, last May, the Kansas City Federal Reserve issued an article blaming it in part on the lack of immigration. Quote, the flow of foreign workers to the U.S. economy has been declining since 2016, when a series of policies to restrict immigration were enacted. Temporary travel restrictions instituted during the COVID-19 pandemic further restricted immigration, bringing levels to a, a an historic low. The net number of international migrants that entered the United States each year declined steadily from 2016 to 2021, end quote. The authors calculate that 1.15 million additional immigrants might have entered the United States in 2021 had the bans not been in place, and over the entire 2016 to 2021 period, 3.4 million additional immigrants might have entered the United States, many of whom would have joined the labor force. While the Trump administration dismantled the asylum system and locked up and deported thousands of would-be immigrants, the Biden administration has tried to rebuild USCIS, but the pandemic restriction Title 42 continues to keep thousands of asylum seekers out waiting in dangerous and decrepit camps on the Mexican side of the border. While all major industries saw an increase in job vacancy rates during this period due to job switching, early retirements, lack of dependent care, and fear of COVID-19, industries that had a larger share of foreign-born workers in 2015 tended to experience more significant increases in job vacancy rates from 2016 to 2021, suggesting that reduced immigration exacerbated labor shortages. Industries such as construction, Leisure and hospitality and other services, such as private household workers, laundry cleaning services, and beauty shops, had an above-average share of foreign workers in 2015 and experienced an above-average increase in job vacancy rates from 2016 to 2021. The Fed concluded, quote, Even as pandemic-related immigration restrictions and delays wane and immigration levels increase, the demand for immigrant workers will likely continue to exceed the supply of these workers in the absence of broader changes in immigration policy. As a result, industries and regions that depend on immigrant workers may continue to experience labor shortages. Industries that are less able to implement labor-saving technologies as substitute for missing immigrant workers, such as the direct care industry, will likely experience increasing shortages in costs, creating a further headwind for aggregate labor supply, end quote. So next time you're in the long line at your favorite fast food restaurant or waiting to get checked in at a clinic or hospital, and someone says Americans or young people or some variation don't want to work anymore, just tell them we just need to open the border. Last Friday, CWA filed, <clears throat> filed an unfair labor practice charge against Apple for multiple federal labor law violations, including 
creating a fake company-controlled union to interfere with workers' organizing efforts. Over the course of the year, Apple has opposed workers' organizing for better pay and working conditions by launching a national anti-union campaign to prevent employees from exercising their right to stand together. Sarah Steffens, CWA Secretary-Treasurer, said, creating a work group controlled by management is undemocratic and a clear <clears throat> and a clear attempt at union busting. If management actually cared about workers having a voice on the job, they would direct them to the Apple Retail Union, CWA, which is run by workers, <coughs> not bosses. <coughs> which is run by workers, not bosses. On today's show, you'll hear about the National Labor Relations Act enforced by the National Labor Relations Board. Since the early 2000s, anti-union forces have tried to starve the agency, robbing workers of the justice the law is supposed to provide. Today, Jennifer Abruzzo, General Counsel, and Lauren McFerrin, Chair of the Board, released a message thanking the public for their advocacy for a budget increase and announcing that Congress had given them a 25% bump. Certainly not enough, but still very helpful. They say this much-needed infusion of funding comes during a surge in cases for the agency. In fiscal year 2022, total case intake at field offices increased 23%, the largest single-year increase since fiscal year 76, and the largest percentage increase since fiscal year 1959. Similarly, the number of cases submitted to the board members increased 13% from fiscal year 2021 to fiscal year 2022. The news from our side was read tonight by Tom Gebkin, Mark Gallus, Judy Ansel, and I'm Stephen Hill. De colores, de colores se visten los campos en la primavera. De colores, De colores son los pajaritos que vienen de afuera. De colores, de colores es el arco iris que vemos lucir. Y por eso los grandes amores de muchos colores me gustan a mí. That was author and educator Jose Luis Orozco with De Colores a traditional folk song that became an anthem of the United Farm Workers of America. I'm Mark Galis. The aforementioned United Farm Workers Union was founded in the 1960s by Cesar Chavez, Dolores Huerta, and other organizers. It's the largest agricultural union in the country. Unlike other private sector labor organizations, however, it's not governed by the National Labor Relations Act. Instead, the UFW's collective bargaining activities are covered only by state labor laws, which is certainly unusual to the extent that state labor laws normally cover bargaining relationships between the government and public sector unions, police, fire, and other government workers. So why exactly are farm workers covered by state labor laws and not the federal NLRA? You might be surprised to learn that the NLRA's definition of employee excludes two categories of workers agricultural workers, and domestic workers, house cleaners, nannies, home care workers, etc. But why is that? Like so many other things in our society, the answer lies at the intersection of race and politics. 
Joining us to discuss this issue is Juan F. Perea, the Kurt and Linda Roden Professor of Law and Social Justice at Loyola University Chicago School of Law. Several years ago, Professor Perea wrote a law review article entitled The Echoes of Slavery, Recognizing the Racist Origins of the Agricultural and Domestic Worker Exclusion from the National Labor Relations Act. A link to the article can be found on our webpage. Professor Perea, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Before we talk about the National Labor Relations Act, which was, of course, a product of the New Deal, let's talk first about the New Deal itself. What were the social and political contexts of the New Deal for African Americans at that time? Well, this was a time of uh, very great racism against African Americans. A number of things were operating. So, so the, the economy was in the middle of the Depression. A lot of people were suffering. And President Roosevelt suggested a number of uh, pieces of legislation to try and increase purchasing power among workers so that uh, workers through their ordinary purchases could help uh, lift the economy out of the depression. So together with the National Labor Relations Act was the Fair Labor Standards Act, so early Social Security Act, early AFDC legislation, Agricultural Adjustment Act, and so all of these were attempts to get the economy out of the Depression. In 1935, Democratic Senator Robert F. Wagner of New York proposed the National Labor Relations Act. The original version had a very broad definition of employee, which actually included agricultural and domestic workers, didn't it? Yes, that's right. Well, how then did agricultural and domestic workers come to be excluded from the National Labor Relations Act? Essentially, Southern congressmen... Uh, couldn't tolerate the idea of African-American workers having their own purchasing power and rights to organize uh, because this would be disruptive to the uh, quasi-plantation style economy that still existed in the South. They objected vehemently to the inclusion of domestic and agricultural workers. At that time, uh, agricultural and domestic workers constituted about over, I think between 60 and 80% of African-American employees. So uh, agricultural and domestic workers became a proxy for excluding most black employees and uh, keeping them from getting the benefits that became available to most white employees. So I take it there was some horse trading involved in getting this legislation passed. Sure, yes, and, and all of the New Deal legislation. Essentially, the same bargain was struck in all of the legislation, which was exclude most Black employees by excluding agricultural and domestic workers. And by doing that, then congressmen producing the, the legislation would secure Southern votes for it because there would be little or no threat to the uh, Jim Crow economy of the time. So both the agricultural and domestic workers at that time were largely concentrated in the South. Would that be fair? That's probably true. After the Great Migration, probably there were a lot of domestic workers who were African-American in, in northern territory. You mentioned some other examples of New Deal legislation, Fair Labor Standards Act for one. Did those pieces of legislation also exclude African-Americans? Yeah, there was a similar exclusion in the Fair Labor Standards Act, again, excluding domestic and agricultural workers. The exclusion from protection under Fair Labor Standards was corrected in 1962, I think, let's say the 60s. However, there's still one provision that um, allows that, that uh, excludes agricultural and domestic workers from protection under maximum hours legislation. 
So the rest of us get overtime, you know, after working 40 hours a week, but uh, agricultural and domestic workers don't have the benefit of that. So that's still on the books and it still stems from the same reason. Were there other pieces of legislation beyond the Fair Labor Standards Act? Yeah, the the Social Security Act. There was an early version of AFDC, Aid for Families with Dependent Children. And all of these statutes were ways of, again, trying to get money into the hands of many workers, most workers. And uh, so it never made sense to me why if the idea is to get money into the hands of most workers and to protect the most vulnerable workers, why would you exclude the very most vulnerable workers, agricultural and domestic workers? So when I looked into it, what I found was that it was a way of excluding Black employees from virtually all the benefits of the New Deal. So do the exclusions from, say, the Social Security Act, do those exclusions still exist today? No. And during during the mid-50s to early 60s, most of the exclusions were cleaned up, but not at all the one in the National Labor Relations Act, which is still uh, pretty devastating for uh, attempting to organize farm workers and domestic workers. So even though initially designed to disfavor African-American farm workers and domestics, over time, the NLRA exclusions have come to disproportionately affect a different group, Hispanics. Could you tell our listeners about that shift? Well, it's part of the big uh, shift in demographics that the country's been experiencing. I think because of the history of exploitation of African-Americans connected with agriculture and domestic service, I mean, going back to times of slavery when the exploitation was almost complete, there are a lot of negative associations with agricultural labor for many African-American people. So there's not a great desire for that kind of work, as far as I know. And it also has to do with where population centers are, not necessarily in agricultural areas. On the other uh, side, we've had a lot of uh, immigration and also native-born Latinos who uh, have a different relationship to agricultural labor than than was imposed upon African-Americans in the U.S. So... uh, there's a large supply, you know, of Latino workers, and they're the ones the most burdened by this at this point. And would you say that is focused primarily on the West Coast, the Southwest, as opposed to the South now? No, I think it's it's nationwide, actually. Now, now of course, the places that are the most uh, predominantly agricultural will have the most agricultural workers. So, so, yeah, California and I think the South. But there's a lot of agriculture in the Midwest, too, and um, in Michigan, Wisconsin, those those places. And uh, there are lots of Latinos there as well. You know, so it's a nationwide phenomenon. It seems that farm workers can organize themselves through state laws. California is probably the best example of the United Farm Workers, etc. You don't hear as much about domestic worker unions, though. Why do you suppose that is? Well, I'm not sure. I, I think there have been efforts to organize domestic workers in New York, uh, for example. It may be that um, domestic workers are a little more isolated than large groups of agricultural workers, so it might just be physically harder to organize them. But again, unless there's a state law that authorizes and protects their right to organize then uh, they can be fired from their employments, you know, for wanting a union and for supporting it. Um, so it's it's a very difficult it's very difficult to accomplish a union, especially an effective union in states that don't protect the right. 
And again, because the federal law excludes domestic and agricultural workers, the only possible source of right would be state laws that protect the right. And if there's no state law that protects the right, then there's nothing. There's no protection at all. And domestic workers generally don't have a lot of influence in the political process uh, over time, I suppose, as well. That's right. So it's very challenging. Both It's very challenging to uh, work with both groups because the, of the amount of resistance to efforts to uh, protect them and to give them very basic minimum protections that most of us enjoy without even thinking about it. So here we are almost 90 years post-passage of the National Labor Relations Act, and the exclusion still exists. When new Democratic administrations have come to power in the past 35 years or so, there always seems to be a laundry list of items designed to help organize labor. Yet, it seems that there's been virtually no discussion at the federal level about repealing the agricultural and domestic exclusions. Why do you suppose that is? Well, I would say probably a number of things. One is a lack of knowledge. I think most people don't realize that this represents um, an outright race-based exclusion of uh, formerly uh, black workers, most of whom now are Latino. So it, it is a racist law, even though it doesn't appear to be racist on its face. Most people don't know that. And uh, I think if more people knew, then maybe more people would uh, realize that, that the prolonging the injustice faced by domestic and agricultural workers is just serving nothing other than racism and the greed of agricultural and domestic employers. So there's there's some lack of there's a lack of knowledge, lack of publicity about it. So I think your show can help in this way because you're helping to get the word out. Beyond that, I think there's um, there's a certain imagery shared by Democrats and Republicans about what the world should look like. And I'm not saying that this is conscious. But if you think about it, even in the 1930s, Democrats were willing to accept that black agricultural and domestic workers would get no rights for the sake of appeasing Southern congressmen. That's really not an acceptable compromise if you care about the people who are being excluded. It's, there's nothing acceptable about it at all. So that, that will, willingness to compromise suggests an unfortunate blind spot, even for Democrats with respect to the rights of people of color. And there are so many things that could be done if there were a political will to do it, and lots of, um, lots of racial inequity and disparity that, that could, be, could be alleviated probably to a great extent if Congress did the right thing. You know, but that's not going to happen. I mean, Republicans Republicans will do nothing. And Democrats don't advocate for doing the right things. So, you know, I think uh, there's a certain, um, like I said, a certain view of the labor market, a certain view of the economy that most people carry around. And, and that view includes African-Americans at the bottom of the employment ladder and Latinos at the bottom of the employment ladder. And then most good employments reserved for white people. And so we all kind of accept that. We accept that that's what employment looks like in the U.S., but it doesn't have to at all. And it shouldn't. I mean, in a fairer society, we would be much more diverse across the board in every employment, and it wouldn't be controversial. That would be great. <laughs> We're a long way from it, though, of course. In your Law Review article, in addition to this legislative strategy, the idea of just an outright repeal, you also propose a litigation strategy. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that and whether there's been any movement nationally in that regard? Well, I know there are 
at least a couple of organizations, um, unions representing farm workers uh, in the South, in North Carolina, the uh, National Farm Workers Union, and the ACL the ACLU, all of them have explored the possibility of suing to uh, invalidate the statute. I'm not aware that any lawsuits have been filed yet, but I know they're all in progress because I'm pleased that organizations contact me and we talk about it. So the idea there would be to uh, present all the evidence that this statute is a, a racist relic of a very racist time, and the court ought to be willing to invalidate a statute like that. But because of the rules the Supreme Court has developed, there's some question about whether whether intent could be proven satisfactorily to meet the uh, rules that the Supreme Court creates. The current Again, Supreme Court is not also not the biggest fan of organized labor as no, it stands now. And again, it's one of these things where, you know, there's the rules are optional. You know, the, the standards of proof and evidence are optional. And so if the court says, well, you have to prove something that's not provable in order to get a remedy, well, that's a choice, you know, and it's leaving a lot of people without a remedy, which is where we are now. You have to prove intent to discriminate. And I, I think the circumstantial case is quite strong, you know, demonstrating the intent underlying the National Labor Relations Act. But um, intent means the states of mind of the legislators, and there's not much direct evidence of that. Usually for that, you need to have direct evidence of discriminatory comments, and, and you have the discriminatory, discriminatory comments surrounding the National Labor Relations Act. You have it in the Social Security Act. You have it in the Fair Labor Standards Act. And this, these are all enacted around the same time by the same Congresses. So the idea that somehow the, the National Labor Relations Act was, was exempt or exempt from that motivation just seems silly. It's remarkably unrealistic. But, you know, a lot of court rules create remarkably unrealistic burdens of proof that basically defeat remedies for injustice. It's clearly of a piece all being done at the same time. But the problem, I think, the Supreme Court now is there are at least three or four justices who say that even if the stated rationale was discriminatory then, their position would be, well, what difference does that make now? Things have changed and we're a, a better society and all that jazz. But uh, I, I'm not sure they'd even care that it was uh, based on discrimination then. You know, I think you're probably right. I mean, given the way the majority uh, has been attacking the Voting Rights Act case, it's really, um, I would say, it's purposeful um, how to word this, uh, purposeful forgetting of the amount of racism <laughs> that there is, which then justifies defeating some of the tools that actually limited racism. So it's very purposeful. You know, oh, things are much better now. So let's strike this remedy and that remedy. And what that means is that things will get worse rather than better. And that's that's exactly what we've been witnessing in the electoral sphere. And what's the line from the Chief Justice? The way to stop discrimination is to stop discriminating? Yeah. <laughs> It takes more than that. I mean, actually, he's, he's right, but uh, built into that statement are a lot of assumptions about American history and American progress, and it's uh, deeply ill-informed, which well, is the only way you can say something like that. That's right. That's right. Uh, well, this has been an enlightening conversation, and uh, hopefully our listeners will now that they have the, the knowledge about this, I bet a lot of them didn't even know this. Uh, ex these exclusions existed. Hopefully they will uh, uh, find ways to help make this a priority moving forward uh, to get these exclusions someday repealed and uh, create a 
more fair playing field for agricultural and domestic workers uh, under the National Labor Relations Act. Juan F. Perea, the Kurt and Linda Roden Professor of Law and Social Justice at Loyola University Chicago School of Law. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a mighty hard road my poor hands have hold. My poor feet have traveled this hot, dusty road. Out of your dust bowl and westward we roll through deserts so hot and through mountains so cold. I've wandered all over your green growing land Wherever your crops are, I'll lend you my hands On the edge of your cities, you see me and then I come with the dust and I'm gone With a wind California, Arizona I've worked on your crops That was Pastures of Plenty, a 1941 Woody Guthrie song about migrant workers. This version was performed by singer and civil rights activist Odetta. I can talk without really saying anything. You know, music is really the only way I can be honest. Our moment into song and making music from weapons technologies. From ARC to Microchip, Thursday, 7 p.m. We've entered our annual year-end fun drive here at KKFI, and we're looking for support from listeners like you. In case you didn't know, we are a listener-supported, non-commercial community radio station that is committed to reflecting the diversity of the local and world community. We seek to amplify voices that have been underrepresented by other media, and we can't do it without you. Please take a moment to support your community radio station by donating online at kkfi.org. Happy New Year, and thank you for listening to Kansas City Community Radio. Hi, this is Judy Ansel. Listeners know me as a host of this show and a labor educator, but I've had another life as an activist who passionately believes that for American workers to be able to realize the American dream, it must become a worldwide dream for all. In other words, that we can't wall ourselves off as an island of prosperity from a world of poverty. Therefore, we need to pay attention to what both capital and labor are doing around the world And that's especially true about our southern neighbors in Mexico. I began following jobs to Mexico even before NAFTA and visited workers in the leaky shacks where they lived. They made stuff for the U.S. market for pennies, and I smelled the cesspools of untreated chemicals that surrounded the shacks. When Congress passed NAFTA, I knew that it contained a time bomb. That bomb was the contradiction between open borders for capital and for many goods and services and closed borders for people, for labor. 
And so it went from NAFTA's passage in 1993 with the American corporate takeover of the Mexican economy, displacing millions and the rise of desperate border crossers who came to the U.S. without permission and thus without rights. And instead of recognizing the mistake, U.S. politicians, along with their corporate sponsors, just militarized the border, creating untold amounts of misery. When I read Justin Aker's Chacon book, Chacon's book, The Border Crossed Us, The Case for Opening the U.S.-Mexico Border, I not only wanted him to make that case on our show, but I wanted for people to understand the steps leading to how we got to where we are today, with thousands massed in Tijuana, Ciudad Juarez, Matamoros, and along the border, frozen out, desperate from san for sanctuary in the United States, where we Americans don't have a clue as to our responsibility for creating this disaster. Justin Akers Chacon describes himself as an activist, unionist, and educator in the border region of San Diego, Tijuana. He's a history professor at San Diego City College and has written several books, including one with the recently deceased and much mourned Mike Davis. Welcome to the show, Justin. Hey, Judy, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Um, well, great. Uh, let's start by talking about how we got here. Um, <clears throat> Mexico had a pretty radical revolution in the first part of the 20th century. They overthrew a dictatorship. They broke up large land holdings and redistributed land to the campesinos. And they even limited American business ownership in Mexico. And then by the 1970s, even though they had tried to industrialize independently, it all began to fall, fall apart. And the falling apart in Mexico was different from <clears throat> what happened in the United States with um, deindustrialization. Can you talk about why it was that Mexican, the Mexican corporate class decided that they wanted to agree to something like NAFTA? <clears throat> yeah, that's a great, a great question. And, you know, I think it's important, like going back to the revolution to understand both that accomplishment and its limitations. And I think one of the limitations was that it, uh, it was limited to um, a, 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 a type of revolution that didn't actually radically alter, um, you know, the who controlled the economy. I mean, it's uh, large, you know, sections of the oligarch, the oligarchy landowners were expropriated, um, you know, but uh, sections of the capitalist class, especially those in the north with, with heavy ties to U.S. capital, um, essentially uh, emerged from the revolutionary process with much of their wealth and power intact. And so the, re the revolution kind of has two wings, one of this kind of new rising class, uh, you know, that we could locate as a kind of middle cla middle middling class of people, um, you know, military uh, personnel, uh, petty bourgeois, landowners, and others who uh, constituted a new kind of class with an orientation towards developing Mexico as a, as you know, as, as a as a more democratic and capitalist, and, and develop you know the the economy more along um, capitalist lines. Emerged on one side and on the other, uh, you know, a, a kind of older uh, capitalist class with with direct ties, like I said, to U.S. capital in the north. And uh, essentially, the contradictions of development of move between these two these two sort of power bases, um, and ultimately, 
you know, the United States uh, never accepted uh, the loss of its southern, uh, you know, the extension, the southern extension of its of its economy, uh, you know, and so played a, a kind of role over time, reimplanting itself and um, and navigating ways to reimplant U.S. capital, uh, and and ultimately, you know, we see a kind of process in which. The, the model of, devel- of capitalist development that was being used, you know, uh, just it ran into uh, limitations, in part by uh, the United States and its international competitors not wanting to see, uh, you know, a, a kind of rising capitalist power and competitor in, in Mexico. Um, but also the, the, the model of development within Mexico itself became very corrupted mm-hmm. um, and, and ultimately... Um, uh, yeah, ultimately sort of failed uh, to really um, engage in a process of, of inv- investing in development uh, in a way that could counter the other forces at work. And, and so uh, the gyrations and the, and the, and the, and the, the, the contradictions and, and, and the crises of capitalism in the, uh, in the 1970s, especially in Mexico, led it to rely more heavily upon its oil, um, its oil, uh, you know, uh, res- reserves. And, you know, so it, it basically narrowed down into a model in which it was trying to develop uh, its economy through oil exports. And mm-hmm. when the model bottomed up, um, and when Mexico fell into great debt, uh, you know, the United States and its the international agencies that it controlled at that time, which the IMF and World Bank, etc., uh, were able to to enter and basically reuse debt as a way to restructure Mexico's economy and eventually topple that 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 nationalistic model. And you know, in the waiting in the wings over this you know over this time was a was a growing and and you know, restless you know, capitalist class that saw you know more verdant, more greener uh, pastures. Uh, you know. Um, Reconnecting, you know, to U.S. capital, mm. and ultimately, you know, um, facilitating the transition from this kind of, uh, you know, developmentalist model of, of capitalism with its tensions with, you know, uh, the capitalist with, within the capitalist class, you know, casting that aside and, and reconnecting to the the model of development that was dependent on partnership with U.S. capital. Okay. Well, you know, before we get into what NAFTA then does <clears throat> to the situation. Let's talk a little bit about um, migration between Mexico and the United States, because, uh, <clears throat> of course, <clears throat> Mexicans came. Migration served as a kind of safety valve for Mexico. Whenever, <clears throat> excuse me, whenever the economy was in trouble, um, the United States was there to absorb a lot of Mexican workers. And whenever the United States needed workers, they opened the door for Mexico. And so somebody once referred to Mexico, uh, the border, as, as the United States back door to let, you know, to let the peons in, to let the laborers in. Um, <clears throat> movement between Mexico and the United States up until a certain point was pretty open and free. Um, <clears throat> when did that change? And, and, you know, how does that then impact NAFTA? Yeah, so it's... Uh, so it's important to understand the border is is, is a very politicized 
you know, the politics around the border are very much in tune with the political economy of the United States. And um, so, you know, what, what we understand is the border today, the physical, you know, uh, where I live, I'm just about five minutes away from the border. You know, there's like a, it's a very militarized zone. Um, you know, there's triple fences. There's all kinds of military, military technology. <clears throat> there's, uh, you know, there's the kind of um, the presentation of, of absolute control. Um, and but if you go, you know, if you go to the east, um, about 20 miles, you see that it shifts to uh, smaller and smaller fencing. And then there's areas, huge areas where there's nothing there at all. So I think it's important to first recognize that what we have today is not a closed border. Um, it's about 600 miles of directly policed border of a 2,000 mile shared border. Um, and so there's literally you know hundreds of miles where um, you don't see anything. It's not that it's not surveilled, but it's just um, it's a reflection of how policy, especially since 1994, focused on creating you know this 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 idea of a barrier, but only in the, in the traditional crossing zones. And, and so there's, 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 you know, crossing, moving across borders has never changed, but the policy has shifted accordingly. So going back to, uh, you know, the early uh, 20th century, um, the first significant waves of migration were tied to the revolutionary process itself. And then after the limitations of the of the revolutionary um, process, for instance, the failure of actually mass redistribution of land. I mean, there was redistribution of land, um, but there was insignificant redistribution of land, and uh, the retain the retaining of, of a capitalist agricultural sector, which over time, you know, um, squeezes out you know this these other models that developed out of the revolutionary process. Um, and so people started to migrate, you know, in relationship to uh, both the well the destruction of the revolution, but also the failure of of, of land redistribution. And then we have um, essentially, uh, you know, the U.S. government, um, while it's building barriers to other forms of migration, you know, especially from like Southern Europe and Asia and other parts of the world, they actually created these exclusionary uh, these, these, these sort of exceptions or exemptions from Mexican workers. So between the period of the revolution, 1917, or uh, the culmination of the revolution, you know, 1917 to 1920, when the Constitution and the stabilization of the new government, and 1929, the, the Great Depression, there was actually significant uh, migration, and it was encouraged. So it was... Uh, you know, under uh, Woodrow Wilson, for instance, that there's this there's this idea that comes from like uh, the groups the the groups of growers, the the uh, you know the uh, the large landowning corporate farmers of the Southwest who basically petitioned the U.S. government to create exemptions for Mexican workers on the basis that they would come and work and they typically would return. And so it's a very you know, so so this idea of like how the border functions is very much in tune with with the the economic needs, especially mm -hmm. at this time, growers and mine uh, mine owners, mine operators, railroad operators, etc. Um, but after, of course, after the Great Depression, we start to see you know the criminalization of migration and mig migrants themselves. 
So it's really during the period of the Great Depression that there's an attempt to actually police people inside the border who, who, aren't, who are not U.S. citizens. Um, but even then, it's going to be episodic um, in terms of how uh, the border and how mi migration, undocumented migration are focused. And I'll just say one more thing about, about you know, the, the character, the, you know, the changing character of the border was by 1942, during World War II, the United States actually encourages the mass migration of millions of, of workers from Mexico through the Bracero program, right. uh, which is a precursor to um, uh, a type of captive or controlled labor that we see today in the terms of undocumented workers. Right. Guest labor. So, let, let, let's go on because we, we don't have that much time. And I really want to ask you, so, you know, you said that NAFTA brought free trade without free people. Um, what did you mean by that? Well, there's open borders for capital. There's open borders for money. There's open borders for even the movement of economic actors. I mean, there's a significant U.S. population living in Mexico mm -hmm. who, um, besides the retirees, many of whom are connected to U.S. economic enterprises. So um, there is an open border, um, but there's a closed, a closed border, I should say a regulated border for uh, about 1% of the people that cross the border each year, which are the workers. And so it's a highly structured enforcement regime that targets only a small percentage of people who move across the border. Um, and that's what I mean by that. Okay, and, and then you go on to say, of course, in the book, that that is harmful not just to Mexicans who want to be able to work um, on both either side of the border, but it's also harmful to the U.S. working class. Should you explain why? Yeah, so um, the criminalization of migrant workers um, now going into its you know, fourth or fifth decade um, has essentially re re restructured the U.S. economy, first by creating tiers, which is um, prior to the 1970s, um, migrant workers whose migration was not criminalized, uh, studies show that basically their work was in parity, the pay that they received was in parity with US, U.S. workers in the same industry. Over time, we see the criminalization creating the tiering of, 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 of sectors of industry, of the, industry, of the economy, I mean, where you have whole industries that are just undocumented workers. And you know, uh, and so we see the decline of, of wages in, in those industries because they're now, the criminalization makes workers vulnerable. They get policed by the Border Patrol and later ICE, and employers have the capacity to actually union bust by calling in, um, you know, calling in immigration enforcement whenever there's a union drive. Okay, but if these so, people are in separate tiers, why would that be harmful to people who were legal U.S. workers? Because it's, the tiers are expanding, and new mechanisms, uh, you know, have allowed the expansion of, of non-citizen workers into new new areas of the economy, like uh, tech tech workers. Right? Mm -hmm. um, there's there's um, workers now in the medical industry who are undocumented. So that that was the point I was getting to, which which was after the the tiering of it, we've seen. The, the restructuring 
it hasn't been fully realized because many of these uh, uh, schemes that have been presented in terms of uh, immigration reform um, actually um, legalize the expansion of, of more of more non-citizen workers into new into new areas of the economy, and so um, so you know so we we do see. Uh, we do see a phenomenon where more non-citizen workers are in more areas of the economy, but we see the structuring, the vertical structuring of economies like Amazon, where you have sections, you have a large section of the work workers, like here in San Diego, who are Mexican workers from Mexico who cross the border because they can come to work, and they work on the shop floor, and then you have other sectors, and, and they're mostly Mexican workers, you have other sectors who do um, other type of work who are mostly U.S. citizens, and they're in the same workplace. And so, um, and so, the anti-union efforts directed towards keeping one section of a of a of a vertically integrated workplace unorganized is then you know um, a way to keep other workers in that same workplace from organized. So there's okay. there's a lot of different strategies. Yeah, so we're almost out of time, um, and I promised that I, w I would I would ask you about the current labor shortage. And you know, like what I always say when somebody tells me they complain about uh, um, you know not being able to find workers is why don't we open the border? Um, do you see a relationship between you know like this armored border that we have that is very selective about who gets in, and you know the current labor shortage in the United States? Well, yeah, there there is a, there are a lot of contradictions around uh, access to labor. My whole argument in the book is that the militarization and criminalization is a way to resegregate workers and divide workers along racial national lines, um, but not to stop immigration. But there but there is there is there are consequences for just building up a repressive apparatus um, that makes basically you know. Um, makes it harder for people to access work and, and ultimately combined with economic crisis makes people less likely to migrate because work might, might not be available. So yeah, so it, it, it does contribute. It is, you know, not just in the United States, around the world, you know, coming out of the, the pandemic crisis and the, and the recession that we're, in, that we're entering into now, there are going to be significant labor shortages as a result of of you know the way capitalism has structured labor markets and, and you know especially in the most advanced sectors of the global capitalist economy. Well, we'll have to leave it there because we're out of time. We've been talking to Justin Acres Chacon, and he wrote a book called "The Border Crossed Us," and making the case for opening the U.S.-Mexico border. Thank you so much, Justin. Really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Uh huh. Bye. I'm Mark Galis, here with our occasional feature, Labor Song of the Month. Tonight, in keeping with our farm workers theme, we'll hear Huelga in General, which means general strike. In 1965, a group of organized Filipino farm laborers went on strike in Delano, California, against grape growers to protest low wages and poor working conditions. The National Farm Workers Association, a group of Latino farm workers led by Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, gave its support to the growing strike. The organizations would merge in 1966 and become the United Farm Workers of America. The striking farm workers utilized secondary boycotts, which are boycotts not of the workers' primary employer, but boycotts of associated entities. As we learned earlier in the program, farm workers are not covered by the National Labor Relations Act, which actually worked to their advantage in this case. 
Secondary boycotts are illegal under the NLRA, but since the farm workers were excluded from the protections of the Act, they were free to use secondary boycotts to help achieve their economic objectives. The farm workers boycotted grocery stores, liquor stores, and bars that sold wine produced by the vineyards. Some five years after the strike began in July 1970, the grape growers entered into a collective bargaining agreement with the union. The song Huelga in General was one of the most popular songs sung by the striking farm workers during the Delano grape strike. The song was adapted by Luis Valdez from a song called Viva la Revolución, written by composer Valdemar Gomez to celebrate the Cuban Revolution. The lyrics speak to the solidarity of Filipino and Mexican farm workers in the general strike and to heed the words of Cesar Chavez that we will win this strike. This version of the song, performed by the band Los Lobos, comes from the album Si Se Puede, a charity album released in 1977 to benefit the farm workers' union. Si Se Puede, of course, means yes we can and is the motto of the United Farm Workers. Here's Los Lobos with Huelga in General. La noticia muy alegre que de verlo es diferente Pues el pueblo ya está en contra Los rancheros y engreidos que acababan con la gente Y como somos hermanos la alegría compartimos con todos los campesinos ¡Viva la revolución! ¡Viva nuestra asociación! ¡Viva huelga en general! El 8 de septiembre de los campos de Deleno salieron los filipinos Y después de dos semanas para unirse a la batalla salieron los mexicanos Y juntos vamos cumpliendo con la marcha de la historia para liberar el pueblo ¡Viva la revolución! ¡Viva nuestra asociación! ¡Viva huelga general! Que el trabajo siempre se hace con bastantes resquirones Y de nuevo Leona Texas han traído sinvergüenzas Muertos de hambre por frijoles Pero hombres de la raza se fajan y no se rajan Mientras la uva se hace pasa Viva la revolución, viva nuestra asociación Viva huelga general ya saben los contratistas que ni caro ni barato comprarán nuestros hermanos Pero como es bien sabido para mantener familias más sueldos necesitamos Ya está bueno compañero y como dice César Chávez de esta huelga ganaremos Abajo los contratistas, arriba nuestros huelguistas que se acabe el esquirón ¡Viva la huelga!
now for the Heartland Labor Forum calendar, which is very brief because not much is going on besides family this week. But um, uh, right after New Year's on Thursday, January 5th, the Wyandotte County Legislative Delegation will have a town hall meeting briefing people on what's coming up in the Kansas legislature. That's going to be at the West Wyandotte Library, 1737 North 82nd Street in KCK, Thursday, January 5th, 6 p.m. And then Labor Notes has released its schedule on its online trainings, virtual classes, uh, based on the book Secrets of a Successful Organizer. Uh, topics will be Beating Apathy, Assembling Your Dream Team, and Turning an Issue into a Campaign. Those will be Thursdays, January 12th, January 19th, and January 26th, unfortunately competing with our show at 6.30, from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. If you want to sign up, go to labornotes.org and look at the events link, and then you can find it. Um, that's it for tonight's show. Tune in next week to the Heartland Labor Forum. We're doing something rather unusual. We've solicited people to look in their crystal ball and tell us what they think is in store for the working class and for labor in 2023. So we're going to be playing a bunch of opinions about 2023 from labor producers here in Kansas City and actually around the world. So tune in for that. The Heartland Labor Forum is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Check out the rich diversity of programming related to workers and unions at laborradionetwork.org. Thanks to our engineer, Stephen Hill. Stay tuned for the Thursday night special, which is from ARC2 Microchip, produced by Dwight Frizzell, mixing commentary, dramatic reenactment, original music, historic voices, audio art, and sound effects in a pan-historical, pan-cultural milieu. And Happy New Year to everyone. Listening to the Heartland Labor Forum, a show by and about workers, our workplaces, and our labor movement. We are radio that talks back to the boss, and you can talk back to us too. Send us your feedback, your workplace stories, news, and ideas for shows to Heartland Labor Forum KKFI at gmail.com. Our website, where we archive shows and post our upcoming ones, is heartlandlaborforum.org. The views expressed on this show are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any of the unions involved. Tune in every Thursday evening at 6 or to our rebroadcast Friday mornings at 5 right here, 90.1 FM, KKFI.
Gary Holtman.